From Chicago, welcome to Three Degrees Discussions. I'm your host, Mike Vasquez. This is a podcast devoted to the stories behind the innovators, entrepreneurs, and leaders in the 3D printing industry. Zometry and uh, in college, by the way, I was actually in product development, and I was um, uh, I was both you know running a machine, but also we were sourcing a lot of parts, and so I've been both a buyer and a supplier. And one of the challenges has always been uh, that sourcing side. Uh, who do I look for? You know, uh, I get quotes in different places. Uh, so a lot of times you're waiting for these manual quotes to come back. I'm zipping up files in a what you call a TDP, a technical data package. And uh, it's a lot of waiting game. It's also, I'm only exposed to who I know, who I think can make these parts. Uh, Zometry's taken that in a different direction, kind of turned it on its head a little bit. So Zometry is a platform that's actually connected with over 5,000 capable manufacturers globally. And 3,000 of those are domestic in the US. And over time, we have been able to work and train machine learning AI to interpret a 3D model and provide pricing in over a dozen different manufacturing processes. That was Greg Paulson from Zometry. Greg leads Zometry's application engineering team. Zometry is an AI-driven manufacturing as a service marketplace platform. Greg started his career running polymer laser sintering systems and is now responsible for a number of different printing technologies within Zometry's portfolio. He joins the show to talk more about the company and his experiences being both a user and a customer of 3D printing, along with now being a supplier. All right, Greg, welcome to the show. Why don't we start with a little bit of background of how you got your start in additive manufacturing? Hey, Mike, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm excited to talk about this, and certainly additive manufacturing has been a major part of my career in my life um, for a little over 13 years now, uh, so it's been very exciting. I, I started in... Uh, right around 2007 or so. And this was at James Madison University uh, where I was able and lucky enough to get my hands on uh, selective laser sintering at that time and ran uh, SLS machine and learned that. And um, as when I left college, I went to find a career uh, focusing around that. So I ended up finding the only place in my area that actually had SLS and I, uh, I worked my way into running that uh, that center, and then ultimately found Zometry, um, you know, a few years after that. And it's been really interesting uh, because not just you know laser sintering, we've you know are running uh, uh, DMLS metals, uh, FDM, uh, polyjet stereolithography, HP multi-jet fusion, carbon DLS, and uh, you know I'm a kid in a candy shop now uh, when it comes down to this uh, because of our our model of uh, of on-demand manufacturing and uh, we just have so many options. So it's kind of rare that I talked to someone that got their start in SLS versus FDM. So kind of what did you take from kind of putting your hands in the powder, fiddling with parameters, I'm sure, and heating and, and all that with SLS that you've taken now to expand that into many different technologies? Uh, I mean, I think it's very interesting. Yeah, I to, to that point in 2007, when I was first learning, uh, desktop FDM was not quite there. RepRap machines were around $5,000. So, so it was, 
it, I think the cupcake was a year or two off uh, from the MakerBot uh, platform, and that's really you know started the started the movement. So yeah, it is it is weird and it's backwards <laughs> for sure. Uh, and I've been spoiled. I actually do not have a desktop FDM printer, although now I'm kind of craving one. Uh, hashtag Christmas list. Uh, um, but yeah, I got into SLS uh, and. At that time, they were for rapid prototyping. Uh, so this is a, the machine that I was running. Um, if we have any people that are, are in AM listening to this, it was a DTM Center Station 2500 Plus. Was the, Very uh, solid machine. I've run that one. It is a beast. It, it, well, it's, the thing about 2500 Plus is they're over-engineered. Uh, and even better, like half the parts you could get from McMaster car too. So like, it's, it's like, it's like, you know, in, in a shop where you have that car that you're always tinkering with, that's what these, these SLS machines were at that time. Uh, there's good and bad there. There's the, the good is that I didn't know the ins and outs of the machine. You know, I knew how to take it out. If I saw something wrong, I could go back, find the timing belt, actually find the belt on McMaster that probably fits it and, and, fi you know, fix some of these, uh, uh the, some of these pieces. You know, some of the things around the actual mechanics of moving the powder around were the proprietary part, but a lot of the, the structural stuff um, uh, was, was, you know, part of what we call like this kind of Gen 1 or Gen 2 of uh, additive machines where, um, where there still was a lot, a lot of access. But that being said, a lot of that talent led it, was, was in the operator's hands. Uh, I had to learn how to look at the powder you know, how to get a sense of what those first scans look like as a material. So SLS uses a laser to melt a nylon powder um, or polymer powder, but most of the time it's nylon. Uh, and you would actually look at inside the window, you look at the SLS TV and watch the um, first layers go down. And I was always looking for something that was kind of at this kind of crystally glistening snow look uh, when the material is being scanned. Because uh, you didn't want it to look too glossy because you're, you're over-melting and you didn't want it to look too, too matte, which means you're probably not really getting a good fusion on that Z direction. So you're, you're probably going to have a more porous part. And, uh, and there's a lot of tuning, which is absolutely great if I'm the engineer working on my engineering designs for my internal shop and the parts that I'm using are for my purposes only. Uh, but I could tell you, you know, a, a decade plus into this, when you're serving a customer, it's a very different story on how much I want to tinker with my, uh, my production capabilities. And uh, more modern machines have very highly vetted tuned, you know, parameter sets for that fusion process. <clears throat> Excuse me. For sure. And now and, you're, oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I just had a cough there, but yeah, it's a, it's, it's, let me restate that. So if we need to cut that out a little bit there, but the, um, yeah, I, now we have the machines that have a, a lot more of a feedback loop to them, uh, that have, you know, finally tuned from the OEM machine running the OEM material with the OEM parameters. I will get X amount of quality assurance out of it. And it's, it's very, you know, very good for serving a customer because I have a much higher, much more consistent result. So can you tell us a little bit more about what Zometry is and how you guys, your start there? Yeah, I'm, I'm always happy to. And, you know, Zometry, it's, it's a really unique uh, platform. So I always say it solves this problem of procurement. Uh, so I've, I've been, uh, between, between Zometry and uh, in college, by the way, I was actually in product development. And I was, um, uh, I was both, you know, running a machine, but also we were sourcing a lot of parts. 
And so I've been both a buyer and a supplier. And one of the challenges has always been uh, that sourcing side. Uh, who do I look for? You know, uh, I get quotes in different places. Uh, so a lot of times you're waiting for these manual quotes to come back. I'm zipping up files in a, what you call a TDP, a technical data package. And uh, it's a lot of waiting game. It's also, I'm only exposed to who I know, who I think can make these parts. Uh, Zometry's taken that in a different direction, kind of turned it on its head a little bit. So Zometry is a platform that's actually connected with over 5,000 capable manufacturers globally. And 3,000 of those are domestic in the US. And over time, we have been able to work and train machine learning AI to interpret a 3D model and provide pricing in over a dozen different manufacturing processes. And that's the process itself. So the materials and the configurations like specs, finishes, uh, tolerances, all that is just, you know, all that also automatically updates. But the beauty of this is that we are, we are able to actually allow a customer to upload a file and see pricing instantaneously, change their process, their materials, their configuration, the pricing updates, the lead time updates automatically, and they press go. And so this wait for the RFQ no longer is there. And then on the other side of that, we use data science, AI, machine learning also to matchmake. So Mike, if you ever uh, watch Netflix and it gives you that recommendation score, like, hey, that's a 97% chance we think you're gonna like this movie. Um, you know, there's some data science behind that. And we kind of do the same thing with, uh, with this network of manufacturers. So based off the, the needs of that project, we actually pair with the manufacturers that are best able to do that work. So sometimes those are, you know, straight configurations like ITAR to ITAR, for example. Uh, but sometimes it's about the work that uh, from previous performance of those manufacturers that they've done to quality on time. And what, what allows us to do is have a secure, safe, and confident supply chain regardless of the projects that are coming in, uh, because we have so much access and so much parallel capacity uh, through our vetted network. So a lot of the kind of seeing with the additive manufacturing kind of theme. So I imagine a manufacturer that has a few SLS or MJF systems, they probably have their own business and may not rely fully on you. Like when they have excess capacity, that's when the matchmaking happens. Or is it, do you have suppliers that you're just sending parts to and they signed up to be in the Zometry network? Uh, so uh, the vast, vast majority, of it, actually, I would say almost all the manufacturers are professional shops. So their business is to make parts professionally, uh, to spec it on time. We could be 10% of their revenue. We could be 90% of the revenue. It just depends on the shop's uh, size capabilities and kind of how they want to work within the mix. Um, what we provide is a platform for those those manufacturers to get work on demand. So they're seeing they're seeing one work and they're not bidding against it. It's not a bid war. It's almost like a Uber, uh, you know, if like if you're an Uber or Lyft driver, you'll say like, hey, there's a fare in your area, um, you know, we'll pay you this much and and you want to take it yes or pass. And so in that in for the manufacturers, they'll be able to to, to take a look at this the work, review the scope. Uh, hopefully it's, you know, like I said, with that match score, it's something that they they would want to do. Uh, 
in their work and they could say uh, yes. And as soon as they press yes, it's an instant purchase order. You know, they don't need the market for it or anything. They get, they get the work and they're able to do, you know, what they do best, which is make parts. And, or they could pass, so say their shop's at capacity or it's not the best fit, they could pass and it'll go to the next available manufacturer. So you know, what's interesting is that though there is actually a difference, you know, from a, for example, from a machine supplier on our network and a service bureau, I think you hinted at that a little bit with, you know, they may have multiple machines. And as your role as an application engineer or kind of running that group, how do you kind of work with the incoming parts? So, I mean, since you have so many different platforms, 3D printing, non-3D printing, um, design for each of those manufacturing processes, quite unique. And then you have this added layer of kind of getting as many parts out as you can and the supplier network. But how do you kind of help with upfront with designing of parts and saying, okay, this part's not going to do great or the manufacturer has to think about this when they're, they're producing the part. Yeah, we, we definitely, uh, I've helped create a lot of this. Um, we definitely have resources online for design for manufacturability, design tips and other guidelines. In fact, uh, if you go to zometries.com site, so X-O-M-E-T-R-Y is how you spell it. So we have a kind of an X at the front of our name. Um, if you go into the resources tab, there's, uh, there's videos, uh, we have written guides, we have our design guides that are downloadable guides on all these different manufacturing technologies because no one knows that doesn't manufacturing technologies back and forth. And, uh, and it's you know, really good to understand what the cues are uh, for each tech and those nuances to help you design and manage your expectations about what you're going to get. Uh, I know we were talking a little bit before this chat about powder AM, right? So uh, powder metal in particular. And I think when, uh, when someone is thinking about metal 3D printing, uh, their mind may immediately start thinking about these glossy, shiny parts uh, that they may have seen in, like <coughs> a, in an ad or in the front of a brochure uh, somewhere. And there's a disconnect uh, with what a regular metal print looks like versus one that's been you know, heavily post-processed, either post-machine or polished. And, and so uh, even, for example, on our, you know, on our site, pictures can be worth literally a thousand words uh, just to, to help manage what you're going to get out of this process and really where the strengths are. So why would I choose, you know, for example, direct metal laser centering over CNC machining for this project. And I think that's, we have a lot of that, on that pre-sale side to help uh, manage those understandings. And then of course you have that instant pricing and feedback to help you make some business decisions. And uh, even on the post-sale, we do have uh, some design for manufacturability review to help uh, just in case there is something that uh, we may have a re recommendation for a different process for. Do you see most of your customers, and I mean customers, kind of the, the folks that are submitting the actual CAD files, SDL files to you as using it particularly for prototyping, proof of concept, kind of pre-production, kind of vetting out design concepts? So it's been really interesting. I'll, I'll focus on AM because, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about more traditional technologies, uh, although it's, it's been the other way around where they're typically more production oriented, uh, but now pricing and lead times have gotten much more competitive. Uh, so you can use uh, rapid prototype for machining or for sheet metal and even rapid injection molding. Uh, for AM, it's been a little bit different because there's, 
a, not a strong design constraint for what these machines can do. They, you can take a lot of parts and throw them in there. Now, some parts can be better designed for the process, especially in a production setting, but uh, typically they're more designed for giving. And so it's been the king for rapid prototyping. You know, in two days, I could get a part in a durable end-use nylon uh, that is the geometric shape of my 3D design. And, you know, it's, it's, that's really compelling for the rapid prototyping side. But as, uh, as time has changed, I think, uh, especially, gosh, I started in Zometry uh, nearly seven years ago. And, uh, and at that time, it was still, you know, mostly rapid prototyping and some talk of additive for production. And I've noticed more and more uh, in with the mix of rapid prototypes, because additive is still king in that area, uh, you see low volumes. You start seeing low or middle vo medium volumes or repeat orders where these parts are being used for end use in, in a just-in-time manufacturing environment. Um, and the designs have not been designed for injection mold or CNC, they've been designed for additive manufacturing and they're using them as these end use parts. And as we, you know, are right at the end of here when we're recording this at 2020, uh, I'm seeing that more than ever is that the design intent from the beginning of the process was for this part to ultimately be an additive. And, uh, and it's becoming a larger percentage each year of, of from a workflow. And do you see particular industries that are leading the way on that? Well, I think there's definitely uh, is some advantage for um, for IoT devices and um, and other um, I would say something like niche medical devices or devices that have a, a um, lower market or a smaller market, like some market in the thousands versus markets in, or thousands or tens of thousands versus market in the millions, uh, where additive can play a role, especially with revision change. Uh, one of the things that we talk about with injection molding, uh, we usually talk about tool life. So how long do you plan on running this tool? And typically the tool doesn't wear out, the revision wears out. And so additive has this unique ability to play a role um, where if you have, for example, if you have something that is holding a, a circuit board and the circuit board or component on it changes and you need to change your design, you're not shot a tool. Uh, in this case, you update your 3D model and you're able to use it again for direct digital manufacturing via additive. Uh, so I see that a lot. Um, we're also seeing that uh, in, uh, not in the direct production of items like aircraft and um, automotive, although there definitely is in, in aerospace, there's more of a role because of light weighting. Uh, but I have seen a lot of factory level tooling assist being using, the, using additive manufacturing for some of their free form highly specialized design where you may see, again, like low volume uh, production units for the help for assistance on the, on the factory floor. And you must have access to a lot of interesting customer data as you get repeat orders and kind of different types of parts for different manufacturing. Are there any trends that you've seen or you've kind of interpreted over the, the years? Do people start with FDM and go into powder SLS or MJF and then DMLS or are they are there any preferences for machines or types of of, of technologies that you've seen specifically on the additive side? Well, it's interesting. So uh, earlier on, we were when we were talking, you we were saying that it's surprising that 
I wasn't an FDM before I was an SLS. So I, I've always had that mentality about, you know, the powers of SLS and SLS and HP Multi-Dot Fusion uh, are both powder bed fusion technologies that have, the, have this amazing ability to output a lot of parts tonight because I can array parts at different parts so that it's not just, you know, I, I can make 300 of the same parts in one machine, but I can also make 10 of those and, you know, 12 other people's jobs in the same, uh, same platform. Like array, it's both on an X and Y plane, so beside each other's neighbors, as well as above and between. So I could, keep, I could essentially float them in that virtual space. And what we find is, you know, a lot of folks may come to Zometry with this idea that I want FDM because they may be prototyping in their own machines, uh, which they may have a desktop FDM 3D printer. And uh, sometimes when the production volumes get higher, uh, a lot of times we may look at options using some of these powder bed fusion technologies because we tend to have a higher throughput. So that's amount of parts that I could ship per night or you know the bulk parts I could ship per week um, out of those machines versus FDM, which has much more of a serialized uh, um, way of uh, of producing parts. It's, it's kind of like FDM is, you know, if you think about these uh, old school 2D plotters that ha you put in the pen and the pen would kind of draw all the lines and the numbers for you, very entertaining to watch. Uh, but also if you're trying to make, you know, 300 of those, it's very time consuming because you're essentially drawing a line at a time. Uh, and so if I have 20 parts on the FDM platform uh, per layer, you know, I'm drawing that layer 20 times in a row without a lot of, uh, um, I would say, you know, added benefit to it. Like I, other than the fact that I could just fit all those in my machine. But with MJF and SLS, my scan time per layer stays relatively consistent regardless of the density pack that I have in those, those machines. So within about 20, 30 hour period, I could just pack a machine and run through. And, uh, and I think our average bills are 30 to 300 parts per, per machine per night. And so when, when thinking about production parts, especially in powder at that scale, how do you do the post-processing? I guess, is there any um, efficiencies that you've gained through kind of scaling this out to a lot of different manufacturers? Are there best practices that sometimes you could share between your network or is it really just independent of uh, approaches oh. to all these? Absolutely, we want to float all boats. I want to make I want to make the engineers that use us more educated on our additive manufacturing technologies. We want to make the folks that are running these machines as professional services. We want them to get more revenue. We want them to get more success. And I, I'm a true believer of there's this uh, book uh, called The Goal, which is all about uh, throughput. It's all about you know uh, how, uh, how can you increase your revenue by getting your shippables uh, up per day, and uh, and additive has, you know, this ability to do a lot of that parallel work for you. So just inherently in that is the ability to actually do a lot of shipables per day because I'm not doing individual setups per part and running one part at a time. I can do multiple parts at a time. Uh, I've actually written a, a guide um, on our partner blog about how to increase the efficiency of your additive production facility, uh, which helps there. And one of the other things that we do at Zometry is we're only running professional additive manufacturing equipment. So this is industrial scale. So, you know, it's not a $500 printer. It's not a $5,000 printer. You know, a lot of times these printers are 50,000 to 500,000 and beyond, uh, depending on the technology and class of machine that you're running. 
But uh, what did that, one of the things that comes with that, to your point about post-processing is uh, there's a, still, there's a lot more automation there. So for example, my FDM is Stratasys Fortis FDM. A lot of my material is soluble, uh, has soluble support structure. So it's not just a single material, there's two materials running at a time. I can actually take those parts out of the machine and I can get them to, um, I can get them to essentially a sodium hydroxide bath, throw them in there and the support structure dissolves away. So then I'm able to clear off those parts, dry them out and get them shipped out the door. With these powder bed processes, uh, it, they, are, they were, are usually um, uh, kind of rough depowdered, so by hand, and then bead blast to clean, which is actually pretty quick to bead blast out those parts. And things like metal, uh, metal carbon DLS, uh, stereolithography, those do require manual support removals. Um, in some cases, metal, sometimes it requires uh, more machining uh, to that, but again, these are these are production facilities where they have workflows in place to do that very very well. So they're not surprised when they get a job. They they're expecting to do full, full builds every single day. And I'm assuming you, along those same lines, you have some level of quality control that goes through the process, at least for a baseline, for for these parts. Yeah, absolutely, and, and that's one of the benefits of running industrial machines. Uh, is that the equipment, when you have the OEM materials or these, these more industrial materials that have been highly characterized, highly vetted out, so we have data sheets for them, um, they have parameter sets for them, and running on these machines, they run with a very high level of confidence, especially versus a desktop model. So the per first part of that quality assurance is the type of machine and equipment that we choose to have as part of our network and to, to serve our customers with for that consistent experience and you know, consistent lead times uh, that we offer. So you know, quick lead times, good parts. Um, on the additive side for inspection, it is interesting because we, we talk about the rapid prototype versus uh, a production component. Um, there are designs that can grow on a machine. So designs that can be made in an additive platform but it may not be designed for that additive manufacturing platform. So we offer general tolerances that are typical for these manufacturing processes. But if you are rapid prototyping design you may, just made, it's the first time in existence that that part ever showed up in a tangible reality, right? And depending on the process, you're gonna have different tolerances um, and different outcomes based off the combination of that material the process is running it, and, the, and the, the part geometry, which is something that the engineer designer controls. So we have processes that give you those typical outcomes. If you're tuning for a, uh, a tighter tolerance or some, or some sort of fit, uh, sometimes you do need to uh, iterate through. This is where I'll go back to the design guide and say, your iterations will be significantly um, cut down if you read through design guides to understand the process and the materials up front, because there may be nuances like offset this internal hole by six thousandths of an inch in order to make these parts fit, or, or uh, understand that this type of clearance of a thin gap may not be able to be fully cleared uh, of materials to open up the gap to X, to, to X amount. And all that stuff is just, it's part of the understanding the process. 
Is it also sometimes on the manufacturer as well? Because I mean, I could imagine a part situation where I'm intolerant with the design guide, but you farm it out to four or five different service bureaus and you could get back four different or geometry orientations in the build based on how much they're, they're packing and even certainly SLS or MJF, like that may have implications on, on that as well. Do you, do you ever get kind of in, in that level of, of detail with customers or does it mainly oh. save to... Well, I'll say definitely um, with each one of our, our manufacturers, they, these are these are vetted partners. Um, these are uh, they have um, they have quality control system in place, and we also have our zometry quality program uh, that they're adhering to as well. Um, if we do run into any of those issues, so say there's an RMA or NCMR um, zometry itself, we are ISO 9001 and AS9100, and uh, you know we take quality extremely seriously. So we do uh, we do go back review those. Uh, get those get those parts back and uh, work to understand what the root cause is and do uh, you know a remake uh, of those parts typically um, if that's the case. But usually when it comes to orientation, uh, there's there are best practices that you'll see are very consistent amongst um, different providers, especially because a lot of the equipment they're running is the same type of equipment. And part to part, we do have a workflow embedded in our our machine learned matchmaking system that will connect a reorder of the same part or a revision of that part with the original manufacturer within our manufacturing network. So you do get a consistent experience uh, from order to order with, with the parts that you're ordering. Got it. And kind of flipping back and forth between kind of your manufacturing network and, and your customers, kind of when, and I've used Zometry, I've used others, uh, kind of mm -hmm. similar platforms as well. Kind of what, what do you think is kind of the the main reason that people are drawn to to your platform? I know from my experience, it's um, pretty easy user interface, especially if you know the technologies. Generally, you guys have very good pricing as as well compared to to others. Like and and some of these other networks are growing as well. There's Protolabs is a very big network of manufacturers. I think there's been some acquisitions and and other service bureaus. So kind of what what sets you guys apart when when folks are coming to kind of your site and looking to to work with you? Well I think you really mentioned uh pricing and lead time is is a very big deal and uh with with this distributed manufacturing network, uh I think I'm gonna mess this up a little bit. I was talking with my COO the other day, but uh what happens when a marketplace is rich with supply, right? pricing goes down. And we're able to uh, provide competitive pricing and quick lead times because we have a large marketplace that's able to perform the manufacturing of those parts. And again, it's not just for AM, it's for you know machining and other processes as well, as well as quick lead times because we are, we, we're not bottlenecked. We we are able to start that work immediately. The fact that we have so many manufacturing processes also makes it very convenient uh, for our customers uh, because they can order multiple technologies and multiple materials under those technologies all at one time. A, a great example of that is BMW. So BMW, um, who uh, they're also an investor of ours and they've been a customer since before they, they invested. Um, we see a lot of work coming through them uh, through their tooling engineering side uh, for their, uh, their X-Line uh, 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 production plan. And 
their uh, their jigs and fixtures tend to be a mixture of additive components to kind of hug the curves to do those organic uh, curves and contours as well as uh, additive has this benefit especially they're running a lot of um, for the large body components FDM uh, materials where you can actually give a sparse infill so if they're handheld components it's it's lighter weight but it's still very structural uh, but for rigid components they'll use CNC machining uh, so Delrin and aluminum often and uh, for soft touch components they'll actually use urethane casting uh, so uh, a lot of times they'll be able to just put that all on one list and kind of like a Amazon shopping cart just press order and uh, and get going with their day and we take care of the, the rest of the service um, our, our production is very white glove so we uh, you know you are dealing with zometry zometry is your your vendor uh, we are the quality assurance managers we're the case managers for you we take care of everything so once you press order we're taking care of that entire supply chain and all all you got to think about is my parts are coming Tuesday and that's that's really what we, our goal there and when you think about kind of pricing how do you see this playing out in kind of going forward I mean let's take kind of powder SLS for, for instance I mean from when you started the price of nylon 12 from Ivonic or any of the other one or two suppliers has remained the same maybe a little bit lower for for bulk the Printers are arguably about the same price, even some of the MGF. I mean, there's a little bit of speed gain, but as you kind of think about scale of the technology, where what gets you excited? Like, where does the the rubber meet the road in terms of kind of how low of pricing can can you go with with some of the limits that you're push put on by some of the industrial equipment and the business models that have kind of existed for a decade at, at this point. Yeah, I think you have a really good observation. I think all of us in the industry have that exact same observation, which is uh, these technologies are very, very good. Um, some of the material costs really have not uh, gotten more competitive on that. So a lot of the pricing has to do with what you're able to scale. Uh, you know, how many parts can I run in my machine per night? Uh, you know, what am I, um, like what type of, uh, you know, material can get cheaper with, uh, with bulk discounting. Uh, which is very good, but I think there is going to be more pressure coming from uh, this consumer prosumer market that is awesome, by the way, super awesome to watch. And uh, as their quality, consistency, and competitiveness uh, competitiveness comes up, I mean, we're keeping an eye on that market because we're a distributor. We're not we're not married to any particular technology. We just know what gives the best customer experience uh, for price and lead time. And uh, if technologies come into play where they can be competitive and awesome uh, uh, compared to kind of what's, what's been legacy there, you know, I definitely, as a distributed manufacturing platform, I would love to offer that uh, to our, our client base. Um, but again, for us, the biggest thing is, can I give my client a data sheet on that material? Can I give them a consistent experience with that? Uh, can I give design guidance uh, that will help with predictability of the outcome? And I think sometimes that's been a challenge, but absolutely, I think the more competitive market the market is, uh, the, hopefully the more the big players respond uh, with some very, you know, hopefully positive outcomes. And for, okay, we're getting to the end of the year and uh, Outlook is, is hopefully a little bit better for 2021. Are there things you're excited about, new projects, new initiatives that uh, you could share with the audience? Yeah, I think so. 
we've been chugging along and I, I think uh, it's definitely been a very interesting year. Uh, there's been uh, a lot of disruptions uh, and COVID-19 uh, uh, has affected, you know, everybody, You've got both buyers and suppliers out there. Um, I, I'm glad to see, you know, vaccines, again, at this point of recording, you know, vaccines are starting to show their way uh, slowly but surely. And, uh, and there's, um, you know, I'm really hoping for a brighter 2021. Uh, that being said, with our, our platform, I, I think Xometry has been able to take just a very, um, uh, I would say lead by example approach uh, to these disruptions because there's been forest fires in California, there's been uh, uh, tropical storms in Florida and uh, in Texas. And for our customers, uh, we've had no domestic disruption of manufacturing in the last 10 months. And for our suppliers, we've been able to uh, issue out um, essential business letters to keep our suppliers open and running uh, as zometry uh, manufacturers and uh, we've been able to work with our suppliers on ways to help their cash flow uh, keep on coming, uh, even with disruption of their local market, the people that are usually buying from them, uh, you know, they've been able to get work through zometry. So I think we've been very proud of the community that we've been able to build and you know we're more excited we're even more excited about what we're able to do with that so in 2021 we are maturing uh, what we call a digital rfq marketplace and that's an opportunity for customers to not just use zometry for the instant quoting engine but say there is a production or niche niche project that may not be an exact fit for what our quoting engine is able to do they could actually go and directly connect with the suppliers at Zometry we've already vetted in our network and uh, create um, direct connect projects and even get uh, uh, feedback from directly from those manufacturers within our network. It's something we're really excited to bring a, be able to do because we have all this capability. And we just wanna make sure that our customers know that just because it's not in that drop-down box doesn't mean we can't do it. In fact, we do this type of work all the time. So beyond just custom, like what else can we do for you? Uh, contract manufacturing, you know, other, other services, I think is something that's been very exciting and is on the horizon for us. Uh, I also wanna say there's something that I'm, I'm so excited about uh, that our CEO has really championed this initiative. He's, um, he's you know, very mindful of, of the climate, global climate change. And for the last year, all our shipping domestic from Zometry has, we've actually been partnered uh, with a company to offset the carbon emissions from the shipping. And we've been doing that for free. That's been just part of, if you order from Zometry in the last year, that's already been happening. Uh, but we actually just added on our quoting engine, the ability for you to select and choose uh, if you want to purchase carbon offsets for the manufacturing of your project. So you can actually go right now on Zometry's site. So go to uh, zometry.com, click get a quote, upload a 3D model, select your process material, and you'll see what the carbon footprint for that manufacturing will be. And you could choose to offset a portion of it or all of it. 
and you can even choose where you want to offset that. So if it's you know uh, if it's uh, building new forests, if it's uh, wind energy, um, you could actually choose that right on the side as part of your order. And I think that's just something that with this type of platform, it's one of the only mechanisms which like which we're able to do that. You couldn't do that with a traditional manufacturer. And it's just something really excited to think about when you think about digital manufacturing and this this industry 4.0. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for the time today. And this is a very insightful conversation and uh, look forward to staying in touch. Awesome, Mike. Thank you so much. Yeah, this is, it's always fun to talk about and, and uh, you know, I love getting in the weeds with manufacturing and, and talking more shop for sure. Great. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Mike.